All right, would you bow with me? Father God, we praise you, Lord. Thank you so much for this beautiful weather that you have given to us. Thank you for this new year that you have given to us. And thank you once again for the Sermon on the Mount by which you have taught us all the principles that we need to live righteous, godly lives here on earth for your glory. Thank you for the treasure rule. Thank you for the worry rule, the criticism rule, the prayer rule. And now today, Lord, as we look at the golden rule, we thank you for these rules that are such basic principles for living to please you and to draw others to you and to live the abundant, joyful life here upon earth. But, Father, may we not just praise you for these rules because your word was not given in order to be praised but to be practiced. We know that Jesus didn't give us this sermon just so that we could look at it, dissect it verse by verse, and comment upon it and add it to our storehouse of knowledge. But he gave it so that we might carry it out. We know that just in just a few verses, he's going to be telling us that the man or the woman who hears these sayings and does them is like that person who builds his house upon a rock. But the, the man or the woman who hears them and does nothing about them is like one who builds his house on sand. So, Father, may we each be doers of the word and not hearers only. We pray for the continual filling of your Holy Spirit to empower each of us to truly, as we look at this golden rule, to be able to do unto others as we would have them do unto us. And we ask this not so that we might be credited for being so spiritual, but so that the Lord Jesus Christ and he alone would get the glory through us. And we pray these things in his name for his sake. Amen. All right, this is lesson number 49, I believe, in your books, The Golden Rule, Matthew seven twelve. Now, before we broke for Christmas, we'd been studying the sixth division. If you go to the front of your books, you'll see the whole outline for the Sermon on the Mount. And we had been looking at the sixth division of this very famous sermon. And that sixth division was what we called Rules for the Redeemed. And there are, in that section, five basic rules for those who know Christ, the redeemed. And we've already looked at four of them. I tried to give you sort of a little refresher review because it's been a long time. It doesn't seem like a long time since we've been here. To me, it seems like ages. But we looked at, first of all, the treasure rule. Then we looked at the worry rule and the criticism rule or the judgment rule. And we broke when we broke. um, Well, before we broke, we looked at the prayer rule. And then we had that special lesson on angels. And if you missed that, there are tape cassettes back there, what the Bible has to say about angels. Now, all we have left is one rule, which is found in just one verse, Matthew 7, 12. And it contains what is known as what? The golden rule. And it says, therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Now, as we consider this one very simple but deeply profound verse, it's an all-consuming verse, and we know that we have a clue because it says this is the law and the prophets. What's the law and the prophets? The whole Old Testament teaching. So it's an all-consuming verse. As we look at it, we're going to break it down into three divisions. And I didn't change this, so it's the same as in your books. We're going to be looking, first of all, at the connection, part one. In other words, how it connects, how this verse connects to that which came before it. 
And then we're going to look at the commandment itself, which is generally described as the golden rule for life and living. And last of all, we're going to discuss the consolidation, which is that concluding phrase that says, for this is the law and the prophet. So the connection, the commandment, and the consolidation. To begin with, let's look at the connection. What is the first word in Matthew 7, 12? Therefore. Now, what do Bible students always ask when they see the word therefore? What is that? Therefore, therefore. All right, so what, it is, what is it therefore? Therefore is a connecting word, isn't it? Kind of like and or thus or uh, whatever. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> it's a connecting word that immediately informs us that this verse is not just a detached statement hanging completely by itself with no connection to anything else. Does Jesus operate that way anyway? Does he? Does he just hang something in there for the sake of, oh, this would be a good time to say this? No, everything is always well thought out and perfect. Everything he says is perfect. The, the Lord did not just have an impulse to throw in the golden rule at this point in the sermon. So rather, as with everything he said or did, there was a clear reason and a clear connection to that which he had been attempting to teach his audience. In this case, there is an important connection with the golden rule and what he had been saying prior to this. So for just a minute, let's back up to reconsider what the Lord had been saying prior to this statement that he made in Matthew 7:12. Well, back in the first six verses of chapter 7, if you go back and just kind of look at those while I'm talking, where he says, judge not that ye be not judged. First six verses there, the Lord Jesus had been discussing what we call the criticism rule or the judgment rule. And he said, for with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. That was in verse 2. In other words, if we judge others hypocritically, hypercritically, or self-righteously in order to condemn, then we can very well expect the same type of treatment in return. Furthermore, if we assume God's place as all-knowing judge, you know, judging others as if we were God, then God is going to hold us accountable for the standard of knowledge and wisdom which we are claiming is ours. And we talked about that. If you missed that rule, you can get the cassette tape on the judgment rule, the criticism rule. The theme of that particular rule was that of equity and justice. As you judge others, you yourself will be judged. Equity and judge it, um, justice. Well, the golden rule is also about what? Equity and justice. All things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. We could paraphrase, really, we could paraphrase the entire criticism rule by saying, howsoever ye would that men judge or criticize you, judge or criticize ye even so them. The golden rule, therefore, is a perfect connection with that which preceded it in the judgment rule. In fact, it is really a summation of not only the judgment or criticism rule, but just about everything that the Lord had been teaching throughout the entire sermon. 
And by the way, Matthew 7:12 is the end of the body of the sermon. So this is sort of a summation of everything he's been teaching to this point. Beginning in verse 13 of chapter 7, we get into the Lord's long invitation. It's just an extended invitation to everyone who is not in his kingdom to enter into his kingdom. So this, we're looking today at the last verse of the body of the sermon. But, so it summarizes everything he's been teaching to this point. For example, what did he promise to, do, to the one who is merciful to others? What did he promise to the one who is merciful? That they shall obtain mercy. As ye would, we could say, as ye would that men show mercy to you, even, ye, even so do ye to them, show mercy to them. What was the entire basic idea behind the Lord's teaching on the issues of murder and adultery? and divorce, and speaking the truth, and non-retaliation, and even loving your neighbor, I mean even loving your enemy, loving impartially. Is it not the idea behind the golden rule, or the idea of the golden rule in all of his teaching? Has he not been saying that whenever we deal with other people, we should begin by asking ourselves, how would we like them, how would we like other people to treat us? How would we like for them to treat us? Would I like that person to murder me? No. Would I like him to hate me or to even call me Raka or a fool to slander me? Would I want that woman to commit adultery with my husband or to even lust after my husband in her own heart? Would I appreciate it if somebody lied to me? No. Do you like being lied to? Would you like it if somebody didn't keep a promise they made to you? Would you like it if somebody deceived you or defrauded you or retaliated in vengeance every single time we did something wrong? Do we want our enemies to to treat us nice and to love us even, pray for us, bless us? That would be nice. So in all our dealings with other people, whether in our behavior and actions with them or in our judgment of them, we need to start by asking ourselves first, how is it that I would like to be treated in this particular situation? You know, if I messed up and I knew that I really had let God down, how is it that I would like for someone to come along and handle me in that situation? Would I want them to be self-righteous and condemning? Would you appreciate that? Or would I want them to be humble about it and and helpful and comforting? What are the types of things that I appreciate others doing for me? What are the things that encourage me when I'm down or uplift me when I'm having a hard time or when I've fallen into sin? What helps me to keep myself on the narrow way? Um, And what are the things, on the other hand, that people do or say that upset me? These are questions we should be asking ourselves. Uh, What are things that uh, people can do or say that discourage me um, or tempt me to get off the narrow way? Perhaps, you know, tempt me to gossip or to have unclean thoughts. We need to each make, and and some of our things will be different from other people. For example, one of my pet peeves is I don't like it when I'm talking to somebody and they don't look me in the eye. 
So I know that personally I don't like that. So when somebody talks to me, I always try to make eye contact. Now, if I fail, just punch me, okay? Get my attention because I don't like that. But you know what you don't like, right? So what you don't like, don't treat other people that way. And that's not really the um, golden rule. We'll talk about that. The golden rule isn't negative. It's positive, but you know what I'm saying. But each of us need to make a mental list of all the things, you know, our personal likes and our personal dislikes about treatment from other people, how we, we like or dislike being talked about or handled or ignored. Do you like being ignored or avoided or assessed, criticized, judged by other people? And then we should lay these things down as a rule for our own treatment of other people. In our behavior and in our conduct toward others, we need to be consciously careful to to do and to not do those things that we ourselves have found to be pleasing or displeasing to ourselves. I even think about that with my dogs sometimes. I know this is silly, but I was thinking about that this morning. I thought, well, how would I like to be a dog? (laughs) I was having a hard time rounding up my dogs in the pen because there was a rabbit in the yard and I couldn't get him. As I was a little late getting here because I couldn't get the one into the pen because he smelled the rabbit trail. And I wanted to yell at him, you know, and kick him. But I thought, no, I wouldn't want to be treated like that if I was dog. <laughs> so I was real kind and gentle and picked him up lovingly. <laughs> so this is how the golden rule ties in <clears throat> with judgment. If we don't like being unfairly judged or unrighteously criticized by others, and we should remember this, and we should treat others the same way that we would want them to treat us. If, if we do not like unkind things being said about us, then what's the rule? We shouldn't say unkind things about other people. If we don't like it when people make our lives difficult in ungodly ways, sometimes we make their lives difficult in godly ways. And that's okay, but if you make somebody's life difficult in an ungodly way, then we should in turn not make the lives of other people difficult in ungodly ways. It's just that simple. It's really simple, isn't it? It's simple, but it's very, very profound, and it's very difficult really to do, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit indwelling a person. All the multitudes of volumes that have been written on the subjects of ethics and morals, and social relationships, and marriage, and family harmony, and national and international politics, actually any and everything that has ever been written having to do with the problems of human nature, human, uh, excuse me, human relationships, could be reduced to one single solution. And it's found in one simple sentence spoken by the Son of God. All things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. Wouldn't that take care of an awful lot of problems? It certainly would. Now, what about the, we're still talking about the word therefore. What about the the word therefore connecting with the subject that immediately preceded it? We've talked about the criticism rule. That was found in verses 1 to 6. Six, but what about the verses that we find in 7 to 11 concerning the prayer rule? Well, it's only by being in faithful communion with God that we can obtain a spirit of righteousness and grace such that we, we can relate in Christ-like love 
to our fellow man. When we come before the throne of grace, asking, seeking, and knocking, we are reminded of all that God has done for us in spite of our own sins. And this reminder should really greatly help us in the way that we behave toward others. Since God our Father gives good things, remember we talked about that, the Holy Spirit, he gives us the Holy Spirit, he gives good things to us, his children, we ought to make it our concern to do good things or give good things and to do good things to all those who come within our circles of influence. Ephesians 5.1 says that we are to be followers or imitators of God as his dear children. He's our father. We're his children. We're to follow him. We're to imitate him. If he gives good things to his children, we should do good things to other people. So since God has, has dealt so mercifully and generously with us, should we not deal mercifully and generously with others? Shouldn't we? Even those who maybe don't treat us mercifully and generously? Does it include everybody? Everybody. You see, our conduct is not to be based or determined by how other people treat us. The golden rule is not don't treat other people as they treat you. That's not the golden rule. I told one of my daughters that I was going to be teaching the golden rule today, and I said, now, do you know what that is? And she said, yeah, and she was joking. She said, yeah, treat other people as they deserve. (laughs) Uh, I thought, whoa, (laughs) and she started laughing. She knew that wasn't true, but we wouldn't want God to treat us like we deserved, would we? No, no, no. That's not the golden rule. It's not to be based on how other people treat us, but rather the golden rule is is, uh, we're to base the golden rule on how God treats us. Not how other people treat us, but on how God treats us. So do you see then how far this standard of righteousness exceeds the righteousness that was practiced by the scribes and the Pharisees? Remember, that's the main, the key verse of this whole sermon that except our righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the the scribes and Pharisees or religious people, you know, then we can in no way enter into the kingdom of God. Do you think that the scribes and the Pharisees would have wanted God to treat them the way that they treated other people, their fellow man? Oh, no. The Lord Jesus was telling his listeners, you see, and there were some scribes and Pharisees in his audience. He was telling them by the golden rule that nothing less than a standard of total unselfishness is to be our rule of righteousness. You know, that's another name for the golden rule that we could call it. What's the theme of the whole sermon? Righteousness. And this succinctly gives us the whole rule for righteousness. So we could call the golden rule the rule of righteousness. This is the the standard of total unselfishness. That's to be our rule of righteousness. If you can remember nothing else, remember that righteousness equals selflessness. Arthur Pink wrote this. He said, it is utterly vain to speak like angels. Remember we talked about angels last time and how there is an angelic language. Well, he says it's utterly vain if we speak like angels when we're on our knees before God in prayer, if we act like devils in our treatment of other people. So the Lord had the right order here. And of course, why wouldn't he? 
He's God. He always has the right order in everything he says. But he had the right order in first giving the prayer rule and then following it with the golden rule. We must always begin with who? God. We saw this in the Lord's Prayer, too, the disciples' prayer. Always begin with God. After all, what did the Lord say was the great commandment, the greatest commandment? What's the greatest commandment? Yes. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. That is the greatest commandment. And then, what's the second greatest commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. The order was first God and then your neighbor. Because you know what? You cannot love your neighbor if you, as yourself if you do not first love God. So first God, then your neighbor. First communion with God in prayer and then communion with your neighbor based on the golden rule. We cannot function righteously toward anyone until we have a right relationship with God. So we start with God. He talks to us through his word, and we talk to him through prayer. When we realize that he and he alone is worthy of praise, and we see that man is just dust apart from God, and when we see ourselves as sinners who have no rights whatsoever before God, you know, we're unworthy of anything, it's a good thing we don't get what we deserve, and yet... By his grace and mercy and love, when we accept his son as our Lord and Savior, we are given everything. We deserve nothing, but we're given everything. Amazing. Well, when we see this, all of this helps us, should help us, to view our fellow man in the right light. When we first see God as he is, it helps us to see people differently. It really does. Do you notice this as you grow spiritually? When you see God as he is, you begin to see your fellow man differently. We see them as the victims of sin and Satan and and their flesh, um, living in this carnal, corrupt, sin-cursed world. And we see them, you know, as, as the victims of their own weak flesh and their deceitful minds. And isn't that exactly as we once were? And don't we still battle with the flesh? And with sin and with Satan, even once we are Christians? Apart from the grace of God, each and every single one of us would be in the exact position as those who are still under the wrath of God, bound for an eternity of separation from him and from all that is good and all that is peaceful. All mankind is the same. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray, haven't we? Each of us has gone his own way. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of our works of supposed righteousness apart from the Lord Jesus Christ are nothing but what? Filthy rags. All of us deserve the wages of sin, which is death. All of us, apart from abiding in the vine, which is Jesus Christ, can do absolutely nothing about our sin situation. However... Since we who are Christians have received the divine answer, the solution to our terrible sin dilemma, we should desire to share this answer with others, right? Do unto others as you would have them. You see somebody lost out there 
put yourself in their shoes, wouldn't you want somebody to come along and give them the solution, give you the solution, the answer to your sin dilemma? When we remember what God has done for us in giving us what we did not deserve and in giving us his good things, giving us his Holy Spirit in spite of our one-time enmity with him, and when we realize that God sees us as a loving father and looks at us with grace and mercy, seeing us for who we are positionally in his son and for what we one day will become, just like his son, when we see all this, then it changes. It should change our view of other people. We shouldn't look at them as they are now, but as what they can become in Christ. And all of this is why Jesus began the golden rule with the word, therefore. In essence, what he was saying is, therefore, because God deals with you so graciously, you in turn should deal like that, like he does with you. You should deal like that with your fellow man. Don't see others as, as sinful, as the sinful, disobedient person that they may be if they're lost, but see them for what they might become in Christ. Learn to look at others the way God looks at them and in the way God looks at you. And when you're able to see others as God sees them, then it's not going to be that difficult for us to apply the golden rule. All right, that is the connection. Now let's look at the commandment itself, which is all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. Now notice that is a command, is it not? He says, do ye even so to them. That's a command. It's not an option. This is part of God's, remember how we talked about his determined will, his desired will, and his demanded will? This is part of his demanded will for Christians. Only true Christians are able to obey this commandment with the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling him. But this is, a demand, this is part of God's demanded will, which is for his followers. So once God is first in the heart, then the Christian is to take a good, hard look at self. He is to apply the golden rule to his treatment of others. And notice that the Lord begins the command with us. He didn't say not to do what others do to you. He didn't begin with others. He said all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. He starts with us. He starts with ye, which is us. And then he proceeds to talk about our treatment of others. So he starts with us. In effect, he's saying what you would like others to do to you, even so do to them. So he puts us first, you know, as responsible first. He knows how self-centered we are by nature and how much we care about ourselves. We're always looking out for numero uno, aren't we? I mean, it's just something we battle with all the time. Can't help it. We live in these bodies. You know, I can't get out of this body and get into your body and know how you think and act. And, I, you know, we try as much as we try, can, but still we're very self-centered. We're always attempting to, to pamper ourselves, to be comfortable, to be self-satisfied, to be self-fulfilled, to be, uh, we're always self-concerned, we're always protective of self, etc. 
So the Lord tells us to do the thing that runs contrary to human nature, to transfer, thought, transfer thoughts about ourselves to other people. We're to understand that other people, even though we can't crawl into their skin, other people are very much like ourselves. You know the way you think and the way you deal with your emotions and stuff like that? Guess what? Other women go through the same feelings and emotions. We're really not all that different. Even other cultures, people are the same inside. They might have different cult, you know, cultures and ways they go about things, but inside we all think the same, have the same feelings and that, that sort of thing. Do they like, do other people, no matter where they live, like to be treated fairly and nicely? Yes. Uh, how do you treat the checkout girl? <clears throat> Maybe she's not too bright and does some, something really dumb. Maybe she overcharges you. How do you treat her? Do you put yourself in her shoes? How do you treat the, um, the waitress? How do you treat the telecompter? Who calls, you know, maybe that, you don't know what that person's been through that day. They're a person on the other end. They're not, a, some of them are a machine, but most of them are a person. How do you treat them? You know, maybe they're just scraping by. Maybe they don't have much money or maybe that, who knows what's going on in their lives. But to always, we should always put ourselves in another person's shoes. And try to feel how they would feel. You know, one thing that really bothers me, I'm going to be transparent and but I, it just really, really, bigotry of any kind really bothers me. As Christians, there should be no bigotry of any kind, race or social status or anything, because, you know, any of us could have been born with any color skin or from any nationality background or any different kind of social status. So, I mean, put ourselves in other people's shoes and think how would you like to be treated if you were them? basic principle but it could turn the world upside down if people would just obey it so jesus is speaking about the righteousness remember this the righteousness that exceeds religious righteousness as was exemplified by the scribes and the pharisees of his day did the pharisees who or the pharisee singular who passed right by that poor fellow who had been robbed and beaten and left to die on the road to Jericho, do you think he ever paused to think about how he would like to be treated if he was in that man's condition and, uh, and a stranger passed by him? You know, if he was lying there, robbed, beaten, dying? Obviously, obviously, we know the man who had beaten and robbed him didn't put himself in that guy's place, or he would never have robbed and beaten him. But that man, the robber, didn't, didn't pretend to be a religious person, did he? Did the Pharisee and the other religious leaders of Israel ever stop long enough to think how they would feel if they had been born blind <clears throat> and had just received miraculous sight? Wouldn't that have changed things around if they could just think how that man born blind felt when he received his sight instead of condemning him and desynagoguing him? If they could just put him themselves in his position, wouldn't they be jumping all over the place, just like he was, you know, wanting everybody to rejoice with them instead of scorning him? Did they ever put themselves in the place of the man who'd been crippled for 38 years and then miraculously, you know, one day while he was laying there at the pool of Bethesda, he could walk? 
because Jesus came along and healed him? Of course they didn't. They never mentally exchanged places with anyone, with that man or, or with anyone else. Or if they had, they wouldn't have treated people the way they did. What, they were so angry with that man. After 38 years of being an invalid, can you imagine? 38 years. And, and they were angry at him because he was carrying his bed pallet on the Sabbath day. Unbelievable. But are people like that, even religious people? Absolutely. They just can't put themselves in somebody else's shoes. There really is no capacity within the unbeliever, the natural unsaved man, to love and treat his fellow man in the way that the Lord is commanding here. Now, people, unsaved people can do this once in a while. They, they can show this kind of uh, care and concern for other people once in a while but not continually. You know, they can't sustain this kind of unconditional love for their neighbor and even their enemy their whole life through. And that, again, is why this command is only for kingdom citizens, for Christians, who alone have within them, through the new birth, the indwelling power of God the Holy Spirit, to live on this type of a, of a spiritual plane their whole entire Christian life. You know, you, now, you do see people doing good deeds, benevolent deeds for others, but a lot of it is self-centered, really. We'll talk about that in a minute. Now, of course, we fail. As Christians, we fail because of the weakness of our flesh. So this is something that we need to keep praying about, and we, and we need to keep yielding to the Holy Spirit about, and we need to keep working on this as we grow in our spiritual maturity. When the Lord Jesus spoke this golden rule, He made a revolutionary change from all similar rules that had been stated in the literature of almost every religion and philosophy um, up to his time. Some people look at the golden rule and they say, well, this isn't anything new. There were other religions and philosophies that stated the golden rule. But let's look at some of these other ones and let's look at them carefully and see if they are the same. They're not. And what I want you to notice in particular is how each and every one of these other supposed golden rules are given in the negative. For example, we have the famous Jewish rabbi Hillel who said, what is hateful to yourself, do not do to someone else. Notice the negative, do not do to someone else. Then the Jewish scholars who translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, which is known as the Septuagint, They wrote in some of their extra-biblical correspondence, they said, as you wish that no evil befall you, but to be partakers of all good things, so you should act on the same principle toward your subjects and offenders. Notice it's as you wish that no evil befall you. And then the ancient Greek king, Nicocles, he wrote, do not do to others the things that make you angry when you experience them at the hands of other people. Again, do not do what will make you know you angry. Don't do that to other people. Then Epictetus, a Greek philosopher, wrote, what you avoid suffering yourself, do not afflict on others. And you've all heard of this guy, Confucius, a Chinese philosopher, taught his people what you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. And the Stoics, and you can read about them in your notes, 
they taught this principle. They said, what you do not want to be done to you, do not do to anyone else. Now, do you see a pattern in each of these? There is a pattern. Each one of these other ones, besides the Lord's, each one is expressed and emphasized, as I said, in the negative, which is really only as far as sinful human nature goes, without seeking uh, self-praise or some kind of earthly reward. The rules made this way are not expressions of loving one's fellow man, loving your, your neighbor as yourself, therefore treat him as yourself. Instead, these expressions are really based on self-love. The motivation behind the way you treat others is selfish because you will refrain from hurting them. Why? You'll refrain from mistreating them. Why? Only because you don't want them to mistreat or hurt you. That's not the same as the Lord's golden rule. These other rules, we could say, are made of brass, not gold. We could call them the brass rule. The motivation behind the proper behavior that they propose is based on fear and self-preservation. You see, that's because unsaved man cannot come up to the standard of righteousness that is expressed in the golden rule because that standard is based on selfless love. The Pharisee and the Levite who passed that robbed, beaten man on the road to Jericho passed by on the other side. They both obeyed the, um, the brass rules of the world when they saw the man. You know, they, well, to begin with, they never would have beaten him and robbed him themselves, would they? No, they wouldn't mistreat him because they wouldn't want to be mistreated themselves. So they obeyed the brass rule. And they didn't go over and kick him when he was down or steal further from him. I don't think he had anything left to steal, but, you know, because they wouldn't have wanted somebody to kick them when they were down or to have stolen from them. However, only the good Samaritan obeyed the golden rule. Only the good Samaritan obeyed. And, of course, who does he represent? The Lord Jesus Christ. If ever anyone put himself in our shoes, who was it? The Lord Jesus Christ from heaven. He didn't need to come down here and die in our place, did he? But he said, I wonder what it feels like to be in their shoes and to be doomed for all of eternity because of their sin. I'm going to do something about it. And he literally came and filled our shoes and died on that rugged cross in our place. Talk about an example to follow, to obey the golden rule. We sure have it in Jesus Christ. The good Samaritan obeyed the golden rule. He demonstrated selfless love, didn't he? He sacrificed his own time, his own energy, his own money to care for that man. He actually put himself in that man's position mentally. And he said, what if I was that poor fellow? What if I was that woman stranded, you know, and her car's broken down, and there she is with her little kids? Put ourselves in their position. How is it that I would like to be treated by someone passing by? Only the Lord's golden rule encompasses both the positive and the negative 
Not only does it include the brass rule of humanity, you know, don't do to others what you wouldn't want them to do to you, but it also includes the much deeper aspect that involves love, selfless love. It states positively to do unto others that which you would like to be done to yourself. How would you feel if you were in a nursing home? What would you want people to do if that was you? It's much easier to refrain from something. Much easier to refrain. It's easy for me to refrain from going out and murdering somebody. Very easy. But it's much, um, much more difficult to go out and do something positive. Uh, the selfless love that Jesus is teaching is, as we've said, only, only possible through his own spirit, empowering us to love each other even as he loves us. Where does it start? It started with him, right? He loved us while we were yet sinners. He loved us. Then we love him. And when we love him, we can love our fellow man. Selfless love does not serve only in order to prevent self-harm or to ensure self-protection. Selfless love serves for the good and the benefit of the one being served. It serves in the way it would like to be served, regardless of whether or not it ever receives back such service. You know, that Good Samaritan never expected to even see that man again. He left him at the inn, you know, and told the innkeeper if he, if he needed any more money to keep him alive. But he didn't ever expect to receive anything back from him. That's selfless love. And this, the Lord goes on to say, is the consolidation of all that is taught in the law and the prophets concerning human relationships. And that's quite a statement when he said this is the law and the prophets. So let's look at the consolidation. The Lord was giving just here, he was giving one more example of the tragic way in which the Old Testament law had been so poorly misunderstood and reduced in meaning over the centuries. We've talked about this over and over again as we have looked at the sermon. One of his greatest concerns throughout the sermon has been to give back to the people the right view of the law. Remember how many times back in chapter 5 he would say, um, that was the section on the reinterpretations of the law, when he would say, ye have heard that it hath been said, and he'd go on and say, but I say unto you, uh, you know, they had heard that they were to hate their enemies, but he would say, well, he said what? You're to love them. You're to even bless them and pray for them. They had heard that it was just wrong to murder, but he said, oh, no, it's even wrong to have hatred in your heart for someone or to call somebody a fool. They had heard that um, it was wrong to commit adultery but remember what he said but I say unto you to even have lust in your heart and on and on so he was telling the people that what they had heard and had been taught was not in fact the original meaning of God's law in its true character and intent the law given by God through Moses of course was a very positive thing it is a it was a spiritual thing but the Pharisees and the scribes and the other religious rulers over the centuries had turned it into a, just a mechanical, physical, outward system of negatives. They thought and taught that as long as they didn't murder, as long as they didn't uh, commit adultery, which they managed to do anyway through their easy divorce system, 
as, as long as they didn't do these things that, you know, outwardly, they felt that they were all right with God. So they entirely failed to see how guilty they were in the spiritual intent of the law. However, Jesus came along and he taught that the real reason behind the laws that were given against murder and adultery and coveting and stealing, etc., was to teach man to love his neighbor as himself. The consolidation of the Old Testament teaching. And, you know, the law and the prophets includes the whole Old Testament. The first five books of Moses is the law and then the rest of it was called the prophets. So the consolidation of the whole Old Testament with regard to human relationships is that we are to love our fellow man, created just like us, created in the image of God. We are to understand our fellow man and his desire and to desire his well-being just as much as we desire our own well-being. And this is what all the detailed rules and regulations of, of the whole Old Testament law tell us to do. For example, the law said that if one saw his neighbor's ox straying, what was he to do? Go get it. What would you, you know, what would you do if you saw your neighbor's car rolling down the driveway? <laughs> I'm trying to think of something comparable. <laughs> or so, oh, I know, I, a better example. What if your neighbor's dog got away? Okay, or cat and came to came to your house. You take. I don't know what you do about the rolling getaway car. <laughs> Get out of the way. But why was he to take his neighbor's go run get his neighbor's ox and bring it back to him? Why? Because the law was basically saying, um, do unto your neighbor as you would do to yourself. Love your neighbor. You're to say to yourself, my neighbor is just like me, and this would be a tragic loss for him. Uh, if this was my ox, I, I certainly would want it to bring it home to him. So, I mean, I would want him to bring it home to me, so that's what I'm going to do for him. In other words, the law is telling us that we are to be interested in our neighbor. And who is our neighbor? Anyone who is in need, and we have the means to meet that need. Any, everyone is our neighbor who has a need, and we see that need, and we can fulfill that need. It's not just the person who lives next door to us. We're to love and we're to help uh, and we're to desire to help all of our, all those that come into our circle of influence so we have the means to, to meet that need. We're to be concerned about other people's welfare and their happiness. So all the detailed regula regulations and principles are nothing more really than illustrations of this great principle. All things whatsoever you would that men should do to you do ye even so to them. You could take all the law and scoop it together, and that's what you'd have. It's a consolidation. Exodus 22:21 tells us, Thou shalt neither vex a stranger nor oppress him, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. You see, the Jews knew from their own personal experience, they knew um, what it felt like to be strangers in a foreign land. They, they were actually served as slaves under the heavy yoke of Pharaoh for many, many years. So shouldn't they have been able to therefore treat people who were strangers in their own land as they would like to have been treated in Egypt? Um, but how did they treat strangers in the land? How did they treat the Romans? 
They'd slip up on them and slit their throats and treated them terribly. How did they treat Gentiles? Like dogs. And the religious rulers even treated the common people like dirt under their feet. How did they treat women? Wouldn't it be revolutionary if men could put themselves in women's shoes? <laughs> Say, well, wonder what it feels like to be a woman. <laughs> and the other way around. Uh, <clears throat> But they certainly didn't do that. By the time of Jesus, the people, for the most part, the people had lost sight of the fact that all the divine precepts of the law and the prophets were spiritual as well as physical, and that they concerned the inner man as well as what the outward man was doing. The law was given not only to be a guide for the actions or the motions of the body, but for the intents and the workings of the heart. Jesus didn't come to destroy the law, did he? He's already told us this in the sermon. He didn't come to destroy it or change it, not even by one little jot or tittle. He came to fulfill it. He was saying, this is no strange and different rule that I'm giving to you, but one which God my Father has required from you since the very beginning. There was a verse on, I had on this page. Um, if you want some New Testament verses, Romans 13.10 says, love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And let's see, um, when, this is Romans 15.1-2. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. Then there's James 2.8. It says, if ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And it goes on and on. So this, is, we see, is the consolidation, not just of the Old Testament, but the New Testament as well. Leviticus 19.18 says, thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. And then there's Deuteronomy and Proverbs uh, 24.17 says, Rejoice not when thine enemy falleth, and let not thine heart be glad when he stumbleth. Should we be happy when, when people are killed in other countries, even though they're our enemies, and rejoice when they fall, like we see some of them doing? We shouldn't do that. As, a Christ, as Christians, we're to be different from the, the world. Uh, all, all, contain, all of these contain the principle of the golden rule. And then there's Galatians 5.14, where the Apostle Paul said, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And again, we say, how can this be all the law? Because we know the greatest commandment is, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, as we said before, it's all the law because you can't love your neighbor until you do first love the Lord that you're God with everything. So it really summarizes all of the law. Now, do you see how very, very far the world has drifted from God and from the standards of righteousness that he has set before us? Particularly, we see it in the sermon. Do, do you know what all the deep thinkers of this world see as the greatest problem in the world today? All the deep thinkers. It's not economic problems. It's not political problems or population problems or any other kind of problem like money or, or world politics. 
In reality, all of our international and national, social and even family problems come down to one thing, man's relationship with other people. Man is born selfish. Yep, selfishness is the key. (laughs) He sees all of life as only what he can get for himself and how he can best fulfill his own interests. Ultimately, all of the quarrels and all of the wars and all of the murders and all of the family breakups come down to man's selfishness. And when I say man, I'm including women. James tells us this very thing in James chapter 4, verses 1 to 2. He says, do you know how all of our wars and murders and, and national and international disturbances and revolutions and terrorist explosions and divorces, etc., could be solved? Do you know how all these things could be solved? You do, don't you? If each and every single man and woman, boy and girl, on the face of the earth would simply apply the golden rule to their lives. Hitler would never have slaughtered six million Jewish people. Saddam Hussein would never have been the person that he is. Osama bin Laden would never have done the things that he did. Um, Men wouldn't leave their wives for other women and leave them to care for little children without the loving support of a husband and father if they did unto others as they would want done unto themselves. Unmerciful and greedy employers would not mistreat and cheat their employees if they put themselves in their employees' shoes. Women wouldn't murder their own babies in their womb if they did unto others as they would like done unto themselves. There would not be backbiting. There wouldn't be spear-throwing. There wouldn't be gossip. There wouldn't be jealousies. There wouldn't be competition within the body of Christ if Christians who alone have the real power to obey this command, um, were in fact obeying it as they, you know, treating others as they would want them to treat themselves if they were loving their brothers and sisters in Christ as they love themselves. You know, people around the world know, this is probably the most well-known part of the sermon other than the Lord's Prayer, the golden rule. People around the world know this famous saying of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they can even quote it. And they even praise it as being, you know, so profound and wonderful. But the tremendous tragedy is that having praised it, they don't ask how it is possible that they can obey it, how they can treat others the way that is commanded. And the reason they don't ask how they can obey it is because they don't want to. They really don't want to. They'd rather admire it from afar off than practice it because that they know that in order to submit to this law do unto others as you would like to be done unto you they must first submit to to the god who wrote this law and the natural man is what at enmity with god because he first worships self men might say that they admire such a great statement to love their neighbor as themselves, but in reality, they do not want to do this because they love self too much to die to it. They love self-will too much to surrender to God's will. They love self too much to transfer all their thinking about their selves to other people. And this is the sad condition of man as the result of the fall. Let me just look back to Adam. Before the fall, he called Eve, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. 
But right after the fall, what did he call her? That woman. And ever since, ever since, natural, natural man has been entirely self-centered. Cain certainly didn't put himself in Abel's place when he murdered him, did he? By the way, do you know what Adam and Eve, Adam and Steve, no. You You know what Adam and Eve did after they were forced out of the Garden of Eden? They raised Cain. As long as they were able. And we've been raising Cain ever since. <laughs> so let me summarize, going back to this, let me summarize the golden rule for us. Several, um, five things I want to point out about the, the golden rule. Our profession is empty. Our profession of faith, by the way, is what I'm talking about here. Our profession is empty unless we are living out the golden rule. The golden rule condemns us and shows us how far short we come. Want a good way to do a self-examination of your spiritual growth? See how well you're obeying the golden rule. That's a good measurement for us. How do we want men to treat us? The judgment as to how we wish to be treated is ours. We are totally responsible for our own conclusion. Our conclusion is critical. For it is how we are to treat others. It is the basis of judgment upon ourselves. We will be judged for how we actually treat others. The third point, this, uh, this is the pulpit commentary or something. I can't remember the name of it. But um, he's, The third point they make here is the golden rule makes all men equal. It does, doesn't it? Makes all men equal. How we wish to be treated is how we should treat others. And how others wish to be treated is how they should treat us. All people, the wealthy, the famous, and powerful, as well as the poor, the unknown, and the unimportant, all are to, be, all are to treat each other just as they would wish to be treated. If men would practice the golden rule, the ills of society would be solved. Amen. That's so true. The golden rule, this is number point number four, the golden rule would bring about a world of peace overnight if men would just commit themselves to it. Wouldn't people stop blowing other people up and doing all the horrible things that that man does to one another, raising Cain? They would all end if we could just obey the golden rule. And number five, it says the course of wisdom is to live by the golden rule. It is the wisest thing that a man can do. Why? It assures many friends and the very best in life. Many will draw close to a person who treats them well all the time, and they will respond with like treatment at least a good deal of the time. Realistically, of course, not everyone will respond, but most will. That's true. So let's remember this week and every week of the rest of our lives to try to obey the golden rule. And what is it? Let's read it together. Verse 12, chapter 7. Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, 
do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Father God, such a simple command, but so, so profound and difficult to do. Help us, Lord, each and every one of us to die to self and to emulate the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the greatest example, who put himself in our shoes and was truly willing to make himself of no reputation, become in the likeness of man so that he would die even the shameful death of the cross so that he would take our sins upon him so that we might spend eternity with him. If ever there was selfless love, it was exemplified by him. And we thank you, God, for it, for him, and for for salvation that is made available through him. We love you, Jesus, for what you have done, and help us to truly be followers and imitators of you. For we pray for your glory, these things. Amen.